Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So, uh, Apple announced this thing recently called differential privacy, and I was wondering if maybe we could talk about it because their marketing materials are a little bit hand wavy about how this works, and I figure there's probably some good stuff behind it. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, cool. You're listening to Linear Digressions. So the first thing that I would probably (laughs) find reason to criticize in their marketing materials, I haven't read them directly, but um, Apple certainly didn't invent differential privacy. Differential privacy has been around for, in some form or another, uh, at least 10 years and maybe more, depending on exactly uh, when you think about it having started. Yeah, I do have to say on that topic, Apple's marketing department is very, very good at introducing First of all, introducing features that their competitors, say Google or whoever, have implemented long ago, but they implement they they, uh, they announce them in such a way as it feels new and shiny and exciting. Um, they're very very good at that. And actually, there's there are also instances of them introducing a feature that they had previously implemented, but then took away. So I, I remember with iMovie, there was iMovie. I think. 07 HD or something, and it was really, really good at video editing. It was almost as good as their uh, pro software with Final Cut. And then I think with iMovie 08, they took away the timeline, which is like a fundamental way that video software works, uh, is you're, you're putting video clips on this timeline, and if there's no timeline, well, it's not a very good editor. And then several versions later, they introduced the timeline as this big new thing, and I <laughs> I rolled my eyes so hard. That reminds me of years ago when I was babysitting. And I'd be babysitting for these kids that were, you know, smart enough to make trouble, but not quite smart enough to really be smart. Mm-hmm. And and so the parents would do something like they would say to me, you know, not when the kid is paying attention, like, okay, you can give her an ice cream cone after dinner or whatever. And because, uh, you know, they had mercy on me. They knew I was like the poor babysitter and whatever they could do to like make my life easier but then you don't tell the kid that she's allowed to have an ice cream cone you say something like well i don't know if we can do ice cream tonight but if you promise to be really good at Mm -hmm. bedtime maybe we can maybe we can make a deal right now and little kids have a great sense of honor about these things so you know when you strike one of those deals at least in my experience like they stick with it um oh yeah anyway i'm (laughs) betraying how i'm a terrible person when they're you know, children that I want to get to do things. Uh, differential privacy. Yeah, let's uh, rewind to that. <laughs> differential privacy. If you're a user, it's supposed to be something, yeah, that is is really good for you, um, at least hypothetically. And, and here's why. So the idea is that Apple wants to make the iPhone experience, say, for the users as wonderful as possible. And in a lot of contexts, what that means is collecting a lot of very rich data on usage and and patterns thereof and um, aggregating statistics and things like that, and then using that information to make the services they offer better, more targeted, um, faster, whatever. Yeah, that could be uh, that could be similar to bug reporting, where you're taking uh, usage patterns and you're able to figure out somewhere where users are getting stuck or something. And it could also be used um, big picture to make uh, decisions about what features might be more needed uh, versus just, you know, relying on the hunches of the engineers and, and designers. Right. So all these benefits uh, that you could get as a user if they're collecting all this data on you. At the same time, people get a little bit weirded out by the idea that big tech companies are collecting lots of very specific data on 
on them, you know, justifiably so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anytime the terms and conditions change on any online service that's big, TechCrunch writes some article about how Facebook or Apple or Google or whoever it you know wants to steal your information and yada yada. Yeah, put a pin in that. Let's circle back to that in a minute because it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting point and and it's worth unpacking a little bit more. But um, before we get there, so the idea of differential privacy is it's a way of uh, sort of formalizing the way that we think about the trade-off between the specificity and richness of the data that you have and the privacy of the people who are actually in your data set. And um, there's a researcher named Cynthia Dwork who's done most of the pioneering research in this field from what I can tell. And, uh, you know, so she's been looking at issues like, let's say you have a database and there's two different versions of a database, one in which a person is in that database and the other in which a person is that record is not present in the database and in all other senses the database is the same and you could imagine that there might be something like an aggregated metric that you could make some query that you could make of those two different databases that could allow you to figure out things about that specific record uh, so, so you're you might, kind of mm-hmm. in a way you're taking uh, in software they say call a, they say taking a diff between something and something else basically looking at the difference the the, the things that have changed uh, between those two things. So effectively, that's, I guess, what you're talking about, right? Yeah, and so the idea is that if you have a, a, a database that is just differing in one row, then you could say something like sum this column in database A, sum the same column in database B. The difference between those two is what I can attribute to that single row, and now, boom, like I've figured out your income or your age or whatever happens to be held in that column. And, mm-hmm. and that's where things can start to get... Um, a little bit, uh, anonymization and de-identification starts to fall apart a little bit. And so there's a couple different ideas that are important to thinking about differential privacy. So the first is that when you do a query on a database, there's um, that you could add some noise to the number that gets returned. So you might say something like sum up uh, the incomes of everyone who's in this database A and then sum up the incomes of everyone that's in database B. But when it's doing that sum uh, command, it'll actually smear out their incomes. Like each income might get moved around a little bit by some Gaussian amount of noise. And, and you can um, say how big of a, of a um, fudge factor you want to have on that. The mm-hmm. bigger the fudge factor, uh, the more it's going to degrade the actual number that you get out. So there can be a bigger difference between the number that gets returned by your query and sort of like the ground truth. Uh, so in that sense, it's going to err more on the side of protecting the privacy of the individuals. Or if you wanted to have a smaller noise term, then you have uh, more specific information that you get back. You can make sort of higher quality uh, queries and assumptions and analyses based on that data. Um, but you're getting more into the regime where individual privacy is not as tightly protected. Right, so it's kind of a a, a slider along this axis of do you protect the user privacy more or do you protect your ability to to get good numbers out of aggregation and stuff like that? Exactly, exactly. And um, the other thing to keep in mind is that if you're allowed to repeatedly query the database, then even if you have uh, lots of privacy protections, they can still wear away over time. So it introduces this idea of a privacy budget. And so what that means is that I can query, let's say I'll query the database 
a thousand times what's the sum of all the incomes in this database and each time it's going to be moved around by some gaussian noise mm. but if i do it a thousand times then probably the centroid of that gaussian is going to be sitting on the mean and i can do it a thousand times for database b and then that mean is going to be sitting in a slightly different place and so even now um, you know, any one of those pairs of queries, I don't really know, but when I take many of them together, I can still get the same information out. So the idea is that um, once you have a database, even if it's protected by these differential privacy measures, if you allow repeated queries on it, it starts to eat into uh, the underlying privacy that you've promised. And, and the term they've come up for this is privacy budget. Uh, and that at some point, it doesn't matter what you do. If you keep querying it over and over again, you're just going to fundamentally yeah, uh, eat into that the budget. Answer. Right. Um, and the other thing I should add is we had a, an episode uh, a few months ago. It was a while ago now called Threshold Out Down with Overfitting. And it was actually Cynthia Dwork's group. And they were using an algorithm like this one to try to uh, prevent machine learning algorithms from overfitting when you're doing... Uh, adaptive data analyses, which is really cool. It's like a completely different application of these algorithms, but um, yeah, yeah. So if you if you want more information on that, uh, go ahead and hop back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. Yeah, uh, but there was a second thing that you said that I that I wanted to circle back on. Yeah, it was the idea of public perception with regard to privacy. So uh, any companies that are in the private eye have a lot of incentive to not change their terms of service very often because every time they do, it's potentially a news item and an opportunity for them to get negative press over privacy or whatnot. Oh, right. So this is, this is really cool. Um, so the way that I just talked about differential privacy, we have this idea that there's someone who's sitting there. Let's imagine it's Apple. Apple has this database. It has a bunch of very specific information about you. Um, and then when they want to go in later and use it to, let's say, like build some machine learning algorithms, uh, that they are going to put a layer of differential privacy protections in place, which are going to smear out the data. And so the thing that, make pe that makes people feel a little bit weird about this is they say, okay, Apple, even if you do uh, say you're going to protect my privacy internally via these mechanisms, I know that you might still have this sort of underlying true data, and if you feel like it sometime, you can just change the terms of service, and there's really nothing I can do about it. This reminds me of the second thing that I want to talk about, um, and this is the idea of randomized response. Uh, and I'm not sure if this is what Apple uses. This is actually the algorithm that um, Google uses when they're collecting usage statistics on their Chrome browser. Uh -huh. So that's another place where a data or a company is, is collecting lots of data on the users uh, as people are sort of navigating the internet. And so randomized response is a pretty old idea and it, it started as far as I understand it originally in survey methodology. And so here's the idea is let's say I bring in, I'm doing a study of something that's potentially kind of sensitive uh, and I have to ask people questions that they might have some incentive to lie about. Um, so let's say I'm trying to do a study that's uh, trying to study the prevalence of uh, cheating on college exams. So I'm going to bring in a bunch of college students, and I'm going to ask each one of them, have you cheated on one of your exams in the last six months? And so if you were a college student in this situation, like, what would you say? Oh, of course not. Oh, of course not. Right. And this <laughs> why, is not why going would to be... I? I'm an upstanding student. Yeah. And this is not going to give me particularly good data uh, for right, my study. Right, because it's survey-based. Exactly. If my, if my respondents 
have a reason to lie to me. And so what they did is uh, they'll put up like a screen in the room and it's going to have a, a let's say a, a coin or a, a six sided die or something on my side on, well, my side of it, I guess your side of it. Cause you're the, you're the, oh, um, got it. Okay. the person who's being questioned. And then I am the researcher. I'm standing there with a the clipboard on the other side of the screen. So, but can I see you? Uh, yeah, so we can see each other's faces, but the point is that the screen is hiding. Let's say it's a die. The screen is hiding a die from me. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And so what I'm going to say is I'm going to say, roll the die. And then if it comes up a six, I want you to lie to me. And now, could you please tell me, have you cheated on an exam in the last six months? Oh, interesting. So, so just because of human psychology, if you add let's say a one-sixth chance that I could be lying, and then you, you obscure that that die roll from the researcher, the researcher doesn't necessarily know if I'm lying or telling the truth because the researcher is getting one data point, right? And there's a there's a, a one-in-six chance that I'm lying, so they can't necessarily infer what my real result would be. But I think where you're going with this is if you have a lot of people, then you can you can figure out not necessarily who individually is lying and telling the truth with a high degree of certainty, but in the aggregate, you can figure out what percentage of people tend to, to um, cheat on exams. Yeah, so that's it exactly. I'm, I'm protecting you for this one particular use case, but when I add it up over the entire population, like, yes, there's going to be some, you know, approximately 17% size noise in my sample, but huh. for the most part, if I see something like 90% of the students are saying, yes, I cheated on exam, then I still know that I can do some correction and I can try to guess what's the, what do I think the actual, um, you know, range might be. And it's going to be, you know, it's probably going to, I'm going to be in the neighborhood. 102%. Um, (laughs) Right. Um, And so you can see how before the data has even reached me as the researcher, the noise has already been introduced. So it doesn't matter what I do with my data set at this point. Like there's no way that I can trace back to any one individual person you know, sort of like what the the truth is for them. Um, and so before I even have the data coming into the database, the the noise, so to speak, has already been introduced. The, pr- the privacy protections have already been put in place. And so that means that um, you as a subject are much more, you know, fundamentally uh, protected from any kind of de-anonymization or whatever that could happen down the road. And so that's the, um, the algorithm that they use at like I said, at Google, when they're collecting the data about Chrome usage and bugs and, and malware and that sort of thing, they want to be able to study, you know, what people are doing on the internet and then what happens to them as a result. But they, uh, they introduce um, some of this randomized response noise. Uh, the exact algorithm that they use is called Rapper, uh, R-A-P-P-O-R, Randomized Aggregate Rapper. Privacy Pre- Preserving Ordinal Response. Um, I've been thinking about rapping a lot because I've been listening to Hamilton. <laughs> are you a fan or are you one of the curmudgeons? Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I think this is a different kind of rapper than Hamilton. Yeah, right. But interesting so, in its own way. Just, just to, to, uh, do you have anything more to say about that? Because I have a brief anecdote when it comes to rapper. Yeah, let's go for it. So this is, I mean, just to bring it full circle. So this is... Uh, you know, kind of like what David or uh, differential privacy looks like when we're actually using it. I don't know if this is actually what Apple is using for the differential privacy, but mm-hmm. now maybe you have a better flavor for um, how this stuff actually works under the hood. But yeah, what you got? 
Oh yeah, so uh, typically for a web page, a lot of times what you'll do is you take everything in the web page. As a web developer, you take everything you put in the web page and you surround it in a, in a div, basically in a box. And then you can move that box around. That's how you, for example, take the entire web page and center it. And typically you give these things a name, a class of wrapper with a W. Uh, but one time I was inspecting the source of a web page and I found that that, that that wrapper div had a class instead of T-Pain. And I thought that was just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just got it. Yeah, right. So Because uh, T-Pain's joke, a wrapper. Yeah, we should, we should explain this because my dad listens to this podcast. He's going to have no idea what this joke is. So the, the joke is that there's a rapper, like the musical artist, who's named T-Pain. And, but we're not talking about rappers. We're talking about JavaScript the other or kinds HTML of rappers, or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. And not rapports like what we were just talking about. Also, just because it bothers me when when um, companies phrase things as if they've invented it, um, I, I looked it up on Wikipedia on differential privacy, and I found that down at the bottom they say um, there's Google's rapport, which we were just talking about for telemetry, such as learning statistics about unwanted software hijacking users' settings. Uh, is one of the uses of differential privacy. And the other two things it lists uh, before Apple is Google for histo- uh, sharing historical traffic statistics and the U.S. Censor- Census Bureau for showing commuting patterns. Uh, so Apple didn't invent it. But if they popularize it, I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Linear digressions is a creative commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.